for a bit more dancing. It's true, but I am alight with the energy of the trucking community. <laughs> and I, like, <laughs> so good. Right, so this is the thing that happens with us in Brisbane all the time. In fact, Queensland all the time. We book a date and then we are blissfully ignorant <laughs> of what the surrounding events might be. <laughs> so when we went to the Gold Coast, when was it, like last year or the year before, like we coincided with the supercars. <laughs> and see, I'm from Adelaide and this is cool with us because we do in Adelaide the festival and the fringe at the same time as like a really like petrol head event. So at the airport, there's always just like people with like interesting moustaches and you know, quizzical expressions and like witty glasses, cheek by jowl with just like full kind of like, hello, I'm here to sniff the fumes. And it all works. <laughs> and I feel like that's what's happening in this region tonight. Can I just say before we do anything else, or indeed I let Lee Sales say anything at all, um, <laughs> Is there anyone in the house that is here both for the truck thing <laughs> and the chat 10 thing? Anyone? There's somebody over there. Woo! Oh, <laughs> so, yay! Can we bring up the house lights? We just want... Yeah. Up you get. Up you get, Oh, love. there's another up person. No, oh, no, not you. Oh. <laughs> over here. Yes! And at the back. <laughs> you see, the thing is that we have a small but significant listenership in the trucking community <laughs> because, no, we do. And actually, you, we, we hear from truckers periodically. Do we? But hang on, <laughs> we do. Because we do hear a lot from people who do shift work and like long range driving. And didn't you meet a dude who's just like, I drive trucks and I listen to your podcast and you're like, no way. Uh, Am I making I, that up? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Super. But that doesn't mean that it couldn't have happened. <laughs> um, I'm surprised that there's so few, because I would have thought the Venn diagram between truckers and Chat 10 listeners would be like, you know, that. <laughs> Huge amount of overlap. The Venn diagram. <laughs> Can I just mention, like, I mean, seriously... Oh, but now it's going to make it sound like I just worked in Venn no, Diagram. No, I know, but the thing is, this is a magical moment because you've just said Venn Diagram. Yeah. And but I only... It, I know. Okay. So I love to annoy Lee, and this is my <laughs> first opportunity because, look, I wasn't going to mention this until later, but now you have inadvertently created an opportunity for me to do so. Hold this up. So this is actually gross commercialism, but like, the truth is that Gwen um, Blake, merch, <laughs> merch lady, has just, ha like, created recently, apropos of some dumb, drunk conversation that we had in front of her, a Crab and Sales Wren diagram, which is like two fairy wrens 
And then the oat, like with all the things that um, I like, like butter, rambling anecdotes. Monologues. Sardine dips. <laughs> uh, gnome trafficker. And then all the things that sales likes, margarine, human clock. Dialogues. Book, <laughs> book regifter, food inspector, cello bore, candle hater. And in the middle is just the things that we both liked, which is hardly anything, and, <laughs> and you know, movies and books and things. Anyway, she has designed that, and it's only just been printed. There's, like, I don't want to create a rush, but a tiny number of them for sale <laughs> at the merch thing, but you can get them online later on. But there's some available. And look, look at your face right now. Anyway, anything been happening with you, Lee? <laughs> well, I'm back in my hometown. Woo! Yeah! <laughs> Always and happy to be back in Brizzy. You just turned 50. I did. I did. Last week. And so all my, you know, peeps that come to this, my school friends, my uni friends, we're all turning 50 this year. So there's a lot of text messages that go back and forth going, how are you feeling about being 50? We're all like, well, we all console ourselves by going, well, I think our 50 is a lot younger and cooler than our mothers were at 50. And some of them are here tonight. Most of them are at the trucker thing, but, like, some of them <laughs> definitely have made it tonight. In fact, one of my 50th birthday presents was this frock from one Annabelle Crab. Can you get up and just do a twirl? Because I need to confess my shame about this gift. Like, nice dress, right? So, um... I am a horrible cheapskate, and I also dress that up as environmental responsibility. So I like to buy secondhand clothes. I'd buy clothes on eBay. I bought these shoes on eBay. Um, and I like to go to op shops. And I bought that dress on eBay. It's an, an Akira dress, which would have cost a pretty penny if I'd bought it new, which I didn't. Um, so... <laughs> I got it for but next it's lovely to nothing. nonetheless. And then I when I bought it I thought like normally I would just sling that in its, you know, sweaty state over to sales <laughs> straight away. But then I thought it's her fiftieth birthday present, so I'll get it dry cleaned. <laughs> um, which I did. And then when I got it back from the dry cleaner and went to wrap it, I realised that the colours had run a bit. So there's a bit of like dye on the back of the look at your face, you're just going, ha ha ha, wrap this up, baby. <laughs> Anyway, the good so, thing about sales is that she's non-judgy. So she got the 50th no, I loved it. Like, marquee birthday present of a used dress that could have been worn oh, by some murderer and that also has the colour run, but she's still like, I love it. The thing that I um, love about it is because you have such a good eye for clothes. I do. And also you can be bothered, whereas I can't. And so totally she, can often, be bothered. she often finds things for me and just shows up and they're always absolutely fantastic. So I love it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, and she's been really polite about my lion tamer outfit tonight <laughs> as well. <laughs> Which I actually I know. really like it. Makes Do you want to look put it? crazy, but I love it. Should we put it to an honest vote? Oh, okay. honest vote. Okay, an so honest vote has been called. All right. Okay, so let me give you the backstory. So she's shooting the new season of Kitchen Cabinet at the moment. I, I personally love this outfit, um, but when she wore it on on set to, to I didn't. Show. I just sent a photograph oh, of photo. it. Like okay. it's made by a lady who runs a small business near where I live. Her name is Natalia Rashidi. She's very cool. Um, and she just does this thing on Instagram where she like makes an outfit and puts it on herself and just says, would anyone want to buy this? Like with the sort of waistcoat and the pants. And I'm like, 
I will have one of those, thank you very much. But when she showed it to everyone for work for the kitchen cabinet shoot, they were like, no, you look like a lion tamer. And <laughs> the shirt doesn't work. Bit crazy. So just like, we might as well put it, this is a large sample size. Yeah. And, so, and also we're among friends, so I encourage you to be honest. If you think that this is an appropriate outfit for ca kitchen cabinet, put your hand up. Oh, oh see? overwhelming. A sea of hands. Overwhelming. I, a sea I, of do, hands. I do as well. I don't yeah. understand what the issue is. Well, like, to be fair, I mean, I think that given what we know about what happens when ladies wear anything at all remarkable on television, like, I mean, love. <laughs> <laughs> right? So I'm interviewing politicians and... Honestly, yeah, thank you. That was a very funny laugh. <laughs> <laughs> you can, like, honestly, it's a hair trigger thing, right? Like, so if you wear actually anything, and I think that none of the people that I work with were saying this is a bad outfit, they love the outfit, but they're also a bit like, does it look like you're kind of Taming commanding? Lions. <laughs> <laughs> does it look like you're disciplining a big cat? I mean, fair enough. Um, so I think it's more like, okay, if you wore that for dinner with, I don't know, name a random leader of the opposition, like, would that look a bit attention-grabby or, like, I don't know. Like See, I once got hammered for wearing a dress that people claimed the collar looked like a penis and there oh, was a lot of ridicule. It, but when I saw it, I was like, that is fair that I'm ridiculed for that because that does look like a gigantic dick and I don't know how that passed me by. But didn't, like, there were so many women on television who wore that penis a dress. A lot of people yeah. were wearing that penis dress it in that like, era. It was a bad year. <laughs> It was like the collar or something. It, it was did cut out. Look it was cut out like a penis. Top. It was cut outs at the top. It was a Leo. And everybody realised like after a, a while. Penis. Wow, that's a real. Cock I mean, dress. not an erect penis because that would have triggered my. No, it was like you know, like it was even more insulting. It was like this is a soft cock dress. What so, are you saying? <laughs> so, so I got given this thing. How are we doing? <laughs> I got given this thing recently. It wasn't a birthday gift, but it was in proximity to my birthday, so it's just in my brain as a gift. It was from my friend Lisa Miller. She was all very... Lovely woman. She was all very excited about it. It was this jar of stuff from Aesop, which immediately, like, sends my radar because I feel, like, expensive. Um, and it was called Poo Drops. Has anyone heard of this? Sorry, Poo Drops. Poo Drops, right? And so... Poo literally drops of poo? Because I feel like <laughs> I've no. been into the Aesop shop every now and again on the, like, in King Street, Newtown, I'm like, mm, it feels expensive in here because they're like, I don't know, there's just, everything's arranged perfectly and you're kind of like, I'm going to knock something over and expose myself as a grub. It's, so a, I never, ris like, it's a risky move for me to tell this story because it's quite sensitive between me and Lisa. So Great. <laughs> so Please see uh, Lee's other podcast for the mean stories she tells about me. So Lisa says, these things are just absolutely amazing. You do a poo, you flush it, you drop a couple of drops in, and then it just makes your bathroom smell fantastic. And so I go, so it's toilet duck. And Lisa's like, it's not toilet duck. And so she was very indignant that it, and I'm like, so what, I don't understand the difference between this and like toilet duck, what, what is it? So anyway, so she's like, just use it, you'll see, it's fantastic, you know, blah, 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 it sells out all the time. So... I've used it a few times, and so I'm like... So what's your procedure? Do the poo, <laughs> and then, like, just is it pre-flush or post-flush? I had to ask Lisa that as well, because <laughs> she 
was, she was putting on. a show of hands for anyone who's heard of this ridiculous, oh my oh. God. <laughs> It's airborne. Okay, <laughs> keep your hand up if you use that product. Oh! Keep so, your hand up if you think it's like life-changing and fantastic. Wow. Okay, okay that's a bit so, scanty. Keep your hand up if you do it before you do the poo. <laughs> oh! So okay, I sorry, ask... you're in the front row, lady. Come on. Stand up. <laughs> What's your name? My name's Jess. Jess, okay. So you're a pre-poo poo dropper. So, okay, before. just talk us through it. Come on, nothing to be frightened of. <laughs> I have a different brand, and you do about six sprays beforehand, and then the smell does not escape. Oh, okay. Well, maybe Lisa gave the wrong advice. Lisa, Lisa's <laughs> advice is just a couple of drops afterwards, and then it's this magic, like, wonder drug. What do you think? Before. <laughs> Wow, okay. So, anyway, so that is I've nuts. kind of been like, oh, thanks, This is like a Lisa. whole new world. I had no idea there were drops or spray. <laughs> I just thought you just, like, give that 15 minutes before you go in there. Like, that's, that's, that's pretty much. <laughs> so, I've, so I've kind of accepted it. Thanks, Lisa. Great. Used it a few times. I'm kind of baffled. But then the thing that's really amusing to me is that Lisa is onto me. And so she, like, so a couple of weeks later, she rings and she's like, how are those poo drops going? <laughs> Look, you know, I still feel like it's kind of like toilet duck. I don't really get the situation. And then Lisa goes to me, well, if you're going to not use them and if you're going to be like this about them, I'll take them home next time. <laughs> well, they're liquid gold. I mean, that's expensive. Then I misplaced them, which I don't know quite how I did that. I ended how do you up finding... misplace toilet, like poo? Drops. They were in like the kids' bathroom in a cupboard, so someone else clearly sure. moved them. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so I had this moment of panic, like she's going to come for a visit, she's going to think I've thrown them out. Da, da, da. Anyway, there's just a huge amount of angst and drama over nothing that I've now shared with this group. <laughs> Look, I feel that that'll really take the heat out of this situation. The fact but that I, to be now... honest, I've never understood the whole air freshener kind of thing, because to me it's like... I think like a paste of bicarbonate soda and vinegar will usually fix most things. But I don't... I've never understood, like, say, Glen 20 or something like that, because I think then like, it's like... It's your challenge to just mention as many brands as possible <laughs> whilst being an employee of the ABC on stage in front of more than a thousand people. I just people. want people to know what I'm talking about. I, I just... I don't really understand those products. <laughs> I love that you're looking at me for a response. I don't know. Like, I mean... <laughs> Look. I, so... Because I feel like it's, like, it's not like all of a sudden you just go, oh, all I smell is just pine forest. It's like, oh, I smell, you know, sorry, but I smell poo and pine forest. <laughs> so it's a cloaking mechanism. It doesn't right. cloak, though. That's no, my point. It's sure. just an additional thing. Yes. <laughs> I feel like I guess I've first... really fucked up the sponsorship that we had going <laughs> from Pinaclean. I mean, it's actually in ruins now. I mean, <laughs> we had high hopes and now they are just yet yeah, genuinely in tatters. Um, so <clears throat> it's actually just made me think about the conversation that we had like a year or two ago about scented candles and how yeah. like messed up you are about those and like how do you feel about those sticks that like you put in things and then like they or, baffle or what me I'm just baffled okay you're baffled by I'm the baffled. sticks same with the things that hang in cars off the she's got a brain the slant the size of a planet <laughs> baffled by 
fragrance sticks. Like, how much is there to understand? Just, like, they're just like uh, aromatic oils and they just smell interesting. But what's the, like, like oh but say the fl floaty things that hang off your rearview mirror in a car that some some person, what? Oh, why? like the pine tree things. Yeah, why? I love like, those. What's the wrong with car smell? Well, the wrong car smell is feet and B.O. Yeah. and the curry that you spilled you like You put one like of those things in ago. and it's feet, B.O., curry and pine tree. Top notes of vanilla. <laughs> Hot top notes of pine tree, yes. Well, I mean, you know, it shows you're making an effort and it also shows <laughs> you're kind of like, like broadly I'm cognizant of this situation <laughs> and I have, much like, you know, a dude stopping by at the service station at 10 minutes to midnight on the night before Mother's Day, I've made an effort. Right. It's not great, but okay. I didn't forget completely to try and cloak this reeking horror <laughs> in my car. Like, so it's just, anyway, I actually quite, here's a confession that I wasn't expecting to make. I really like, I don't mind a fake vanilla smell. And you know that people, I mean, so my mum will tell you, if your fridge is smelly, you put a, an open packet of carb soda in there, right? Yeah. I can see some heads nodding. And um, I've got to say, carb soda is the world's most miraculous product mm. because I, due to certain cumulative inattention problems that I've developed recently, um, that have probably been there all along. I am a real bandit for putting things on the stove and then forgetting to check them. I've burned out a number of like steel saucepans. Exactly. And the, the only way to really undo that is with like very consistent application it's of a paste. Spray of a bit of Glen 20 around and it's all better. Mate. <laughs> I've seen you react to kitchen emergencies. I remember when you oh. set your stove on fire, oh, like you were just like screaming, rang your ex-husband, rang next door, like, I'm you know. I'm not gonna pretend I'm like, not useless no, in you're practical matters. In an emergency. And, and in fact, I'm, I'm got actually more about to great <laughs> in an emergency. I've got some more to say about my uselessness later. But um, onto serious matters. Anyway, all I'm saying is, I'm, I'm, trying to get like, us I'm off. trying to like, I'm just trying to round off this conversation. Because I'm now off. thinking. <laughs> I'm like, just trying to pinch off this. <laughs> <laughs> Mate. You can take the Aspley State High School. Like, girl out of that school, but you can't take it out of the girl. You know what I mean? She's just trying to pinch off this conversation about poo. Nice. Anyway. All I just wanted to say is, like, you're funny about scented candles. You're funny, like, we, we when that Gwyneth Paltrow c candle thing happened where it smelled like her vagina. Oh, it wouldn't be funny we, about we that. Started, yeah, but we started <laughs> talking on. about, like, a Chat 10 Looks 3 scented candle oh, that she smelled like, drops. you know. I bet she's all over them. And it, it never took off. But, like, what if we did a dangly, like, no. like what, would no. your, what would your dangly car refreshener smell like? <laughs> Mine would smell car. like panic and desperation, <laughs> but with top notes of vanilla. And, like, what would yours? Mine would just smell like car. It would just be like, it's just added car. <laughs> I feel like you're just not really playing. For a person who's just carried on about poo drops for 20 minutes. I feel... In what was supposed to be a light-hearted, like, 90-second <laughs> intro. Oh, God. I feel like you've disappointed. I feel like the Smith family that I'm about to talk about is going to feel...
feel really like so oh, sorry to the Swift family. We are family so because... glad for your support. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, no, we often uh, our Brisbane show we support the Smith family, and that's who we're supporting again tonight. So thank you very much because some of the proceeds of the show go to the yes. Smith family. And um, also, please accept this unmistakably fragranced tribute <laughs> and. With a great thank you for your terrific work, which we've slightly besmirched uh, this evening, but um, it should not detract from the great honour of the work that you do, and it's her fault. Also, there's nothing, uh, nothing that we like more than a local girl made good, and we've got one of those joining us tonight, who also I'm sure is listening to this out the back and going, what the hell have I signed <laughs> up for? Uh, and I don't know if you're aware, but a Brisbane writer, Sarah Holland Bat, won the Stella Prize um, this year for her book, The Jaguar which is a collection of poetry, which Annabelle Crabb has. And um, we, through circumstances that we'll explain when she joins us, yep. it decided to invite Sarah to join us for this evening's show. So would Slash you please bullied her into appearing. Would so you please would you welcome please. the Stella Prize winner, Sarah Rashid. holland -Bass. I'm so sorry that we've talked about poo for our longer than was really predicted and then we've said anyway so uh here's sarah let's invite somebody who's a genuine <laughs> so let me let me give the stage let me give the backstory to how this came about so crab was meant to host the announcement of the stella prize and she had to go home to adelaide suddenly and so she said could i do it so i did and i, I so i stepped in i i didn't i hadn't to my horror, read any of the books that were the shortlisted books. And I got there and they put me in a room out the back and they said, here's the speech notes. And so I'm kind of cramming them and... Also, thank you very much for doing that. That was very much the act of a great friend. So thank you. Quite welcome. Um, and I was, I had good reasons for my no-show, <laughs> I promise. And so I'm out the back and so I see, you know, it ha includes the information as to who's won and it has a copy of Sarah's speech. And so I've read the speech and it was a really fantastic speech speech. And so on the strength of the speech, I thought, mm, well, I'd be very interested to read that person's book because that's a really great speech. So I went out, bought the book, put it in my bag and thought, and I'll get it assigned at the end. So we do the whole thing. Sarah wins. She gives an amazing speech. And so then, you know, having not read the book at the end, I'm just like, oh, hey, Sarah, how are you going? We're chatting away. And can you please sign my book? Yeah, great. Can we have a photo? Blah, 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 blah. Yeah, great. Okay, good. Have a nice night. I'm just off to see, have dinner with some friends, blah, blah. So I leave. I go home and I go, I'll just open this book and read like the first couple of poems before I go to bed and then I open it and to my horror it is so brilliant it's one of the most brilliant things I've ever read and I love so that after, this is a surprise and so after two <laughs> poems I'm like I just treated that person like a normal human being and they're actually like <laughs> properly brilliant oh my god this is just so mortifying um and so I just had a complete like I didn't realize I was in the presence of genuine brilliance <laughs> anyway so I'm sorry for not genuflecting oh before you <laughs> but it congratulations it, it is such a brilliant piece of work it just is so deserving of every honor that it gets it's really really wonderful oh, and so my you. policy is always like when a book wins a prize I just think it can't be that book it can't be that good like, I love to just not read the Booker Prize winner for, like, several years, and then I like to read it and then go, guys, this is amazing. Like, <laughs> did you not know about this book? Yeah. So I wanted to ask, Sarah, how did you come to poetry as the form of writing that you wanted to work in? Yeah, so I, I started out um, studying classical piano, and that's what I sort of wanted to do with my life. And then 
circumstances intervened and I ended up enrolling in literature, but I feel like what a lot circumstances? of... circumstances? Well, we, we were living in America and then we had to move back to Australia because Dad was diagnosed with Parkinson's and so we came home um, and I think some of the plans that I'd had, you know, to, to audition for conservatoriums and stuff in the States changed and so I enrolled in literature. But I'd always loved poetry. I just sort of... It, it, it to me, was very similar to some of the song, song lyrics I loved, you know. I think people often say they don't love poetry or they don't understand it, but these are the same people who could recite great rafts of the, the lyrics that they love. Um, and to me, they were one and the same, really. You know, I, I encountered poetry at the same time as a teenager that I was learning, you know, song lyrics of the bands that I loved. And so, yeah, it just kind of happened through that. And, I mean, it's not a career... I mean, it is sort of a question, a genuine question, how did that happen to you? No-one no one plans it. You My were parents after the glamour. Thrilled. You were after the glamour. <laughs> it's not... I remember, you know, mum and dad were, were sort of very supportive but also at some point said, um, shouldn't you perhaps just finish that law degree? Um, and then there was the awkward moment where I said, I, I don't think I will and I think I'll be a poet and, you know, but... Um, um, fortunately, thankfully, it worked out. And your dad had a great love of literature. He did, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm a Gold Coast girl, and so it's very unusual. It's unusual to be a poet. It's doubly unusual to be a poet from the Gold Coast. <laughs> um, Hey, there's Rupert McCall. Yeah, and, you know, I, I, there's, there's one other poet I know from the Gold Coast, and that's, it's a very small club. Do you go um, bowling sometimes, or, like, how does that work? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a small club, but I was lucky in that I grew up in a house full of books, and so, you know, the Gold Coast is not, a, not necessarily a literary place to grow up. Um, but thank God Dad had a really amazing library and I had free reign of it and actually no supervision, so I was reading all sorts of wildly inappropriate things <laughs> as a kid. Um, what is the great. most freaky thing you read at the youngest age? Oh, uh, the, the answer that's not a good one, and it was, it was the sequel to The Power of One, which is called... Oh, yeah. 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 Is that which, rude? Yeah, it's, well, it just it opens with, with a rape in a graveyard. Um, <laughs> and I read this at sort of the age of 10. I don't, Mum's in the audience. Sorry, Mum, I don't know if you know Sorry, about Mom. this. but. Um, <laughs> Gonna yeah. find out some stuff tonight. It's not all gonna be easy. But I, I was the same, and it was constantly dipping into inappropriate stuff like, um, oh, you know, Sydney Sheldon novels and Flowers in the Attic and things of this that people of my era all, were all reading completely inappropriately. But it's, it is. I think unfettered access to literature means that you just follow your own path and. Yeah, and you know, I was lucky in that Dad had a really great mix of stuff. He had he had some, you know, his historical books. He was obsessed with Winston Churchill, so he had the whole. Not that I got through those as a kid, but you know, there, there was a real range of stuff. And then you know, I just sort of read, and and we had a lovely family kind of thing of going to the library every Saturday morning, and I'd just bring home. I don't know what the limit was. I think it was ten books or something. I'd bring them home and read them. And Gold Coast Gold nerds, Coast. people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a small club. It's mm, a very small sure, club. a noble club, a noble club. <laughs> so your father had Parkinson's, and and um, the poems in the first half of your book sort of deal with his illness. When did you start actually writing those and and working on that? It took a long time because I think I didn't think of Parkinson's as a topic for poetry. And as a poet, you don't always get to pick your material. You'd like to be writing sexy poems about living on an island in Greece. Um, unfortunately, that was not the reality. And, you know, it, 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 Dad got Parkinson's when I was 18. And so it was sort of a formative experience over a long period of my life. So it took me probably 10 years to come round to see that they could be poems. And then I really wondered whether anyone would want to read them when I started writing them. So it's, it's sort of... I think there's a lot of 
it's actually a very common experience that people have when they have loved ones who are unwell, they watch a long decline. It's sort of painful but also private. And I think for me, actually having written those poems and then having that response from people who have had similar experiences has shown to me that there is actually, I think, a need for a cultural conversation around those kinds of issues. It's so interesting to hear you say that um, you kind of move towards poetry because of your love of music because there is a real music behind just the rhythm of the way that you write and you know how sometimes in poems you're kind of you start off and you're like well okay what's this poem about is this going to rhyme is this going to be in the iambic pentameter and like what's the structure of it but like actually I, there's such a musicality to your poetry that I'd never ever at any point reading the whole book thought, what is the structure of this? Like, it, it's just the imagery and your observation is so musical and acute and just, I don't know, invigorating that I'd never even think, well, what structure is that written in? Like, that's a quite a cool thing to be able to do. So, like, what, like, when you were listening to music and realising that language had a rhythm and a shape and a pattern, like, who are, the, who are the songwriters that really made you go berserk? Yeah, so this is quite embarrassing. I'm a child, go for it. Go, I'm a go, child go. of the 90s, and so the answer to that is, and it, it hasn't aged well, is, like, Billy Corgan. I loved the Smashing Pumpkins. That is okay. That is totally fine. fine. Hands up if you think that's okay. Oh. Totally okay. Everybody thinks it's okay. Most I, people think, at least 20% of people think it's okay. Is it, yeah. <laughs> That wasn't, as, that wasn't a full-throated support. Um, you know, and I have, I have a dear friend who... I was living in America when I was a teenager and she was in Australia and I would send her the poems that I was writing, the first poems that I wrote, which were heavily influenced by Billy Corgan lyrics, and so I have to remain friends with her forever because <laughs> these poems can never see the light of day. Um, so that's it. I'm friends with Sally until I die. But isn't all writing embarrassing? I mean, we've all read Flora's Fancies. Uh, <laughs> the work that Lee wrote when she was 10 or so, and yeah. she's gone to write, on to write some passable stuff as an adult, so, like, I just... And part of... I actually think part of early writing is actually coming to terms with your own shame at the stuff that you write when you're young. And one of the things that I love about Helen Garner's diaries is that she's, you know, gone back to stuff that she wrote when she was younger before she knew or understood all the things that she knows today but is still okay to publish that stuff and deal with the shame of not being as mature then as she is now. Like, it's quite a beautiful thing to watch and to see somebody mature as a writer. So, like, I think, you know, there's no shame in that. It's actually quite a beautiful thing. Yeah, I mean, the, there's an American poet who I love called Louise Glick, and she talks about how she looks back at her early poems with an embarrassed tenderness, which I think is the aspiration. That's what you hope for. I mean, I'm not sure that I feel tenderness towards my 15-year-old poems, you know, but... Um, but embarrassed tenderness is what you feel about your parents too, right? Yeah. A lot of the time, yeah, right? Yes. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. yeah, indeed. And it's something that you capture in your writing about your dad, I think, and your mum. Like, I don't know, it takes a certain amount of maturity to look back at your relationship with your parents and confess the tenderness embarrassment and love that 
kind of exists in that complicated relationship? Well, these are really the most kind of profound, formative relationships of our lives, I think. They're the people who make us, you know, for, for better or worse. And you can strike out from your parents in different ways and, you know, shape your own life. But it is a quite a formative thing. And so, yeah, I think for me, poetry has always been a kind of mechanism, like for any form of artist, I guess, you know, of working through who you are and where you've come from. And part of that, I think, is is reconciling those relationships, which are both tender, but also, you know, at times can be difficult. Can we get you to read one of your poems tonight? Um, The one that we asked Sarah to read is called The Gift, um, which is, is one of the poems towards the start of the collection. Sure, The Gift. In the garden, my father sits in his wheelchair, garlanded by summer hibiscus, like a saint in a 17th century cartouche. A flowering wreath buzzes around his head, passionate red. He holds the gift of death in his lap, small, oblong, wrapped in black. He has been waiting 17 years to open it and is impatient. When I ask how he is, my father cries. His crying comes as a visitation, the body squeezing tears from his ducts tenderly as a nurse measuring drops of calamine from an amber bottle as a teen at the car wash, ringing a chamois of suds. It is a kind of miracle to see my father weeping this freely, weeping for what is owed him. How are you, I ask again, because his answer depends on an instant's microclimate. His moods bloom and retreat like an anemone as the cold currents whirl around him crying one minute, sedate the next. But today, my father is disconsolate. I'm having a bad day, he says, and tries again. I'm having a bad year. I'm having a bad decade. I hate myself for noticing his poetry, the triplet that should not be beautiful to my ear, but is day, year, decade, scale of awful economy. I want to give him his present, but it is not mine to give. We sit as if mother and son on Christmas Eve, waiting for midnight to tick over, anticipating the moment we can open his present together. First, my father holding it up to his ear and shaking it, then me helping him peel back the paper the weight of his death knocking. And once the box is unwrapped, it will be mine. I will carry the gift of his death endlessly. Every day I will know it opening in me. Incredible. Would you please thank Sarah Hollenbach. Sarah is going to be signing copies of the Jaguar outside. I don't know if people saw, there's a merchandise stall and there's some books there. So if you want to say hello to Sarah and get a copy of the Jaguar, I highly recommend it. It's really just the most incredible read. It is a beautiful, beautiful volume of verse. And um, there's so many phases of the book um, and all of them magical. Anyway, 
So I wanted to hear about, and I've been seeing it sitting there. Oh, yeah, I know what you're yeah. about to ask about. Because You've it's watched, and I haven't watched it yep. yet, the Michael J. Fox documentary um, called Still. So this is related to Parkinson's, obviously, and I know that you are I love a Michael lifelong violent fan <laughs> of Michael J. Fox. And so Jeremy and I, like, late the other night, watched this documentary film, which is like, I don't know, it's not long, it's an hour 20 or something, and it's called Still. And it's a film about Michael J. Fox and his really quite long-standing now experience of Parkinson's. And it is the most extraordinary film. And we started watching it and were prepared for your standard kind of down the barrel, you know, here's my experience with this disease. And it is a little bit that, because you meet Michael J. Fox at his current age with his current level of physical ability and impairment. But the extraordinary thing about this film is that they've so faithfully and diligently patched together this story through his life, not from contemporaneous interviews, but from grabs and snatches from his television work. Oh. So, at all points in this film, there is a kind of, you see archive footage of him in family ties or whatever, and then you hear him in his current, at his current age, and situation narrating what his life was like at that time. And somehow, because he's made so many thousands of hours of television, they have found a way to tell the story of his disease and his life through grabs from the television shows that he's That's made. That's incredible. It's so crazy. I, mean, I don't even know how they managed to do it. It's the most loving piece of work. Wow. So he has been extremely, um, I mean, he's cooperated with this project completely. And there is this sort of open-hearted engagement where you, you see him as he is and with all of his impairments. And there's this absolutely kind of heart-ripping sequence quite early in the film where he's going out for a walk, you know, in Manhattan, wherever he lives, and he's sort of, and he's very jerky in the way that he walks around, um, and he walks past this woman who's like jogging by, and she goes, oh, Michael J. Fox, and he goes, hi, and then he just completely stacks it. Mm. And it's hard to watch, like in, in the way that it's hard to watch anyone falling over in the street, but like also this is Michael J. Fox falling over in the street. And that is what happens on screen and it kind of your heart leaps out of your chest. And this woman is just like, Jesus, what? And he says, oh, you really knocked me off her feet. Like he's, oh. he's, anyway, like, so what happens over the course of the film is you hear him narrating what this disease has had, you know, what it's done to his life. And actually, it's the most magical story. I mean, and there's sort of all of these plot twists, like, for instance, when he was working on Family Ties, um, 
and he got the job on a film that turned out to be Back to the Future, where they'd, I think they'd like... Eric Stoltz had been cast. Right? And, yeah. So Eric Stoltz had filmed a bit of it and they were yeah. like, mm, sorry, Ginger, out. no, <laughs> not going to work. And so they went to Michael J. Fox and, and said, Family Ties seen? wouldn't release him. He had to yep. shoot it at night. So yeah. he's like getting up at six o'clock in the morning to go and film all day on Family Ties and then as sun sets, he then goes to work on back in like... Back to the Future. Back to the Future. I keep going to say Back in Time for Dinner, which is like <laughs> totally not a film that he was like... or a show that he was in. But um, so... And they've found all of these grabs from Family Ties where Alex P. Keaton is working two jobs, like as a, like, you know, in a cafe and, you know, in a research firm or something. And the TV mum is saying to him, Alex, are you sure you can, like, manage these two jobs at once? And Alex P. Keaton's going, like, yeah, mum, I, I totally can. Just drink more <laughs> coffee. So, like, it's amazing wow. that there are so many bits of the narrative that they can slot in stuff from... That's incredible. Like, it's it's a, an incredible work of archive. And also, they are constantly using all of these images and, like, random bits of footage that evoke the 80s, that evoke the time that he... when he became famous. And then, as it moves on, and he talks about when he was first diagnosed, when he was, like, incredibly young, like, he was in his late 20s, right? Mm. And then he started filming uh, Spin City. Who remembers that show? I loved that show. And by that stage, he's, he's got tremors in his left hand and he's often got it in his pocket or he's, like, holding something in his left hand. And he tells the story at the beginning of the film about the moment when he woke up super hungover in some L.A. hotel and his little finger was just, like, tremoring and he didn't know why it was happening and that was the beginning of it all. Anyway, it sounds amazing. He's, I read a few years ago his memoir, which is called No Time Like the Future, and right. it was also a fantastic piece of work and a really, um, like... I feel like with Michael J. Fox, like when I was a kid, I used to have written on my school bag um, in, in primary school and then when we lived in Melbourne for a year, I love Michael J. Fox. I loved him so much. I remember that my mother took me to the cinema as a special treat when Back to the Future came out to see it. It's like one of my most cherished childhood memories. And I've always loved him. And I feel like he's... He was a good person to hero worship because he's never really, like, done anything that's violated that. I've only had more admiration for him as the years have gone on. And in No Time Like the Future, the kind of premise of the memoir is when life deal gives you lemons, it's actually not that easy to make lemonade. It's pretty hard to make lemonade. And he talks about how he has tried to come to terms with that. There's a really beautiful um, scene in it, actually, where... He says, um, he talks about, he doesn't often feel, you know, sorry for himself. He tries to find ways to push through. But he's talking to his father-in-law one time who he was really close to. And he's been married to the same woman for, you know, since they were in their 20s, Tracy uh, Pollan. And he's... There's a great story in the film about how they got together because they were filming a scene together and he was like, I'm Michael J. Fox. And she's like screw you, you're not that impressive. <laughs> um, and the father-in-law, Michael, sits down and he's having, like, a bad moment and he says, I just feel like, you know, what did Tracy sign up for here? Like, it was in sickness and in health and it's just been all sickness. And um, his father-in-law goes, yeah, but she also signed up for richer and poorer and you've really nailed the richer part. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I just, I love the guy. Can I, um, how many people here are watching Alone Australia? Oh, it's so good. 
I've yet to watch one second of it. And oh. like, partly that is because you're just like, oh my God, <laughs> this is amazing. I'm like, I'm just going to shelve that for a bit. Like, okay, so I got it took told... took me like five years to watch The Americans. So <laughs> like... I got told ages ago to watch alone some of the American and Canadian ones, which I didn't get around to. And then I don't know why, but I started watching the Australian one when it was about five episodes in and then a whole weekend was lost because I was just glued to it. So basically it's people get dropped into the wilderness and the Australian one's in Tasmania and you are dropped off, you're allowed to pick 10 items that come from an approved list. And so, you know, people pick stuff like fishing line, a knife, you know, useful tarp, stuff like this. You're not given any water. What would you choose? Oh, I would never do this. I'd be absolutely hopeless. Um, Nevertheless, you... what would you choose? <laughs> One of the people on a loan to come with because they know what they're doing. Um, and so... They're dropped with no food, no, no um, water, and you have to live completely off the land by yourself. Um, and they're given a film kit to film, like a video diary kind of stuff. And then it's whoever lasts the longest and there's no time limit. So it's just however long you can keep yourself alive out there. So it's kind of... One of my kids actually finds it scary, and I can see why, because... I would find it scary. I find it quite scary and so creepy. I'd want, like, 50 bucks and for there to be a 7-Eleven quite nearby. The, the, <laughs> the prize is 250000 which I reckon is not enough for the... For the um, stress so classic they... abc fat cat analysis <laughs> <laughs> all of the um people it, it, it's it's confronting on several levels the first is just how much knowledge you have to have of how to be useful in nature and some of the people just... how to be useful in nature <laughs> that just sounds like a euphemism doesn't it people like I could be useful in nature. Yeah. Just I, like, I could do that thing with the stick and the like I know, like, I'm useful in a television studio, but I'm not useful oh, in love, nature. Oh, you're not. You're just like, <laughs> you've just always been well supported. You're like, where's my glass of warm water? <laughs> Why is this so, working? Someone fix it. You're, where um, are you useful? I mean, I, I'm never useful either, so it's not like I'm... So um, they... The, the resourcefulness of these people is just off the charts. There's a guy who's built his own kayak. Like, it's just truly gobsmacking. And it's Is it really, from the flayed hides of his um, competitors? It's from just twigs. Twigs and a tarp, as best I can tell. They never twigs see each other. They never see each other, any of the competitors. They're all spread apart. And so one of the things I find fascinating about it, I like survivor because I like the politics of human interaction but this show is a deep dive into individual psychology because they're alone and how over time that plays out and what they are relying on to get through and so we're at a point now where there's three people left there was four two of whom were women the two women their source of confidence seems to come from their connection to nature and their confidence that nature will look after them and that they're kind of at one with nature. One of the remaining men, I think his source of confidence is in his own competence and he is extremely competent. And then the other man's a born-again Christian and so his faith comes from God. Um, all of them remind me quite a bit of my father because there's a certain... Uh, with my father, Who was to... a renowned lesbian. <laughs> My father used to um, train people how to do this in the military. Uh, and so the first thing is, it's given me a renewed, well, not even a renewed, it's given me some insight into why my father found it so annoying 
and just baffling when he'd be fixing the car and he would go, can you please pass me the spanner and I'd pass the wrench or something. Like, he would be so irritated. Now, seeing what he could probably do, I can see why that would be He's quite like, you're annoying. going to be the cause of the end of civilization as we know it. But then you idiot. The way these people operate and think is so much like dad and it's this kind of problem-solving mentality where they just see like, well, I don't have a fishing rod. How do I make a fishing rod? And oh, now my fishing rod broke. How do I fix it? It just reminded me of stuff that would happen with my dad where he would come to stay. I remember the time I'm thinking of was a time where my house that I live in is very old and it had a garage door. You know, when you get out of the car and you have to twist the handle and the garage door goes up. And I said to dad, oh, geez, it'd be so good to not have to get out of the car, get the kids in the car and because the bum of the car was hanging in the street and I was worried about it. And so dad was like, oh, yeah, I'll just buy one of those electronic things. We'll turn it into a, like, you know, remote garage door. And so I've left for work and so dad's got, there's like a long pole that has to kind of get inserted and various things. And so I said, well, dad, that's not, it's clearly not a one person job. And he's like, oh, it'll be fine. I'm like, dad, it's actually, that's impossible. There's no way you can connect that to that or whatever. Anyway, he goes, oh, well, if it's impossible, just take a bit longer. And then when I came home, I had an electronic garage door. I'd, maybe he hired some people to come. I don't know. It's probably just a one day sales job. It, I, I just, but when I see the way these people behave, I'm like, oh, that's like dad's mindset. It's some kind of ability to, it's like a problem-solving mindset. That reminds me, the weirdest thing happened to me today, and it's happened to me twice. So my father died in 2018, and two times things have happened weird with music. I feel like my father has been in touch via music. So the first was uh, like the day after he died, and my father was a very, very unmusical man. He liked country music, but he had like the probably the most tin ear for music I've ever heard in my life. And Imagine so... how thrilled he'd be with your cello adventures <laughs> right now. Hi, Dad. This is where I spend my days, just like um, so fingering. <laughs> So the day after Dad died, I went down the road to the... Because where Mum and Dad lived, you had to drive to get anything. So I went down the road to, like, this bakery um, to get bread or something. And so Dad, he liked country music and he liked the song Take Me Home Country Road by John Denver. And sometimes in the car he would attempt to sing along and I'd go, Dad, that's so terrible, that's so out of tune. And then he'd go, OK, what about this? Take me home country road and I'd be like no dad dad just lower like you're not even in the right key you just and so terrible terrible out of key singing that he could not hear anyway I've walked into this bakery and the song take me home country roads playing and I'm like oh wow yeah that's one of dad's favorite songs then the girl behind the counter starts singing and it was the worst out of tune singing I've ever heard <laughs> except my father and I was like that is like dad has just sent a message. Anyway, today, I get out of, out of coming out of Brisbane Airport. The thought often crosses my mind when I come out of Brisbane Airport because my father used to object to paying for parking. So he used to drive his ute around and around in a circle. <laughs> and then you'd have to text him that you were there and then he'd finally pull up and get you and then drive off. Um, and so it, it always is a bit of a like when I walk out of Brisbane Airport, it's like, oh, dad's not circling in the ute. Anyway, I get into the cab and the music that comes on is this song that I swear I've only ever heard played by my father from a record album, and it was one of his favourites, and the song was Crystal Chandelier by Charlie Pride. And I, I, I was just... I texted my mother and my brother and went, I just got in a cab at the airport and it's playing Crystal Chandelier by Charlie Pride. And my brother was like, that's freaky. Like, you just never hear that song. It was so weird. So it's like Dad's haunting me through his bad music. <laughs> 
that or it's the truck event. I mean, like, it's, could it be a... Could it be a, just a commercial response? To the... But anyway, back to alone. So these people oh. are... These people... <laughs> these okay, people are no, extraordinary, no. but the person... There's this woman called Gina who... How, oh. how is anyone? And there's in some it? Gina fans in the house. I've got. You could be barking at me right now. I don't I've know how anyone in Australia could not be going for Gina at this point. She is, I reckon, one of the most intriguing characters I've Ooh. ever ever okay. seen on Australian television. She is mind blowing. Um, and so, yeah, I'm just. So, what's the source of her power? Like, what's her expertise? Well, she, connection to nature, and she can just do everything. Her shelter's like a proper house. It's she can sleep without. It's it's in like sub zero in Tassie. She can sleep with no clothes on because her shelter is so warm. It's extraordinary. She's caught the most fish out of anyone. She just seems to know everything. It, it's just her knowledge. I would love to know how she knows so Does much. Does she actually sleep nude? She did, because she had this kind of rash on her legs. <laughs> also, she's a chatter. So, Gina, if you're listening what? to this... she's Gina's a, a chatter? Gina's a chatter, yeah. She's a chatter. God, that I is know. the greatest. I just love her. Of course I, she I is. I just am completely in love with her. She's absolutely superb. And the rest of them are like, I'm just out for myself. And she's like, I'm just making a casserole for somebody who <laughs> no, they're, like, they're, is sad they're on all the amazing. next island. They're all amazing too. There was this woman, Kate, who's an ecologist from Canberra, and she was just this utter expert in plants and she was like well that's edible and you can boil this into a that and if I do this with this it turns into soap just absolutely incredible and then Mike I saw, I saw someone Mike's the guy who built the canoe I saw someone on social media ahead of the episode this week go this week on alone Mike builds a space station because <laughs> that's what he's like it's he's just he builds animal traps he's got a fishing rod with a proper reel that he's made it, it's just extraordinary um, yeah, anyway, I am, I am is, loving it. The thing that I think is really interesting about you psychologically <laughs> is that, like, television has a certain sort of, like, tanning effect on life's experiences. Like, if I asked you to go camping, not that I would go camping I with you, or, you know, like, if I ever invited you to go bird watching, for instance, like, there's just no way that you would do any of those things. But if Gina did them, you'd be like, Oh, I'd go she's with... She's amazing. I'd go with Gina or my dad or Kate because they know what they're doing. Okay. <laughs> they're cool. competent. Like, cool. So, yeah. Okay. That's, no. Anyway, that alone... That seems fine and great. Alone Thank you. Is, um, um, Thank you very much. And, yeah, so Gina for the win. We are like so hilarious. Like it's it's three minutes to nine. What we've talked about like well, one thing. Like we made a little list of things and like okay, we're like one percent through it well, because quick. we've just been crapping on. I've got so some stuff I, I can certainly talk well, well, about. Well, I've got quickly. some things that I can. Well, you've just crapped on about alone for like a million hours. <laughs> so like, can I just say like I actually have made an effort to really get into some Queensland-specific things because, like, one of the things that is cool about Queensland and many things is what about your writing culture? Like, like so many great writers are based in or raised in Queensland and I'm, like, massively... I mean, people... You cough up some superb writers. Anyway, we went to Cannes Writers Festival um, a couple of months ago. When was it? I don't know. It's all a blur. And we met a guy called Dr. Lachlan McIver very briefly. And we both got copies of his book. And I went home and read his book. And it's called... um, 
What is it called? God. I mean, I... Can I jump in while It's called you're... Life and Death Decisions. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I... Um, far out. It's such a good book. And he's, um, like, he's a, he's a doctor, and he works for Médecins Sans Frontières in uh, Geneva, but he grew up in far north Queensland, and he messed around. His dad died when he was young, and he went, I'm going to be a doctor, and then did. And every point at training to be a doctor, he chose the more difficult path. Like, he's like, I think I want to go and work in remote Australia. I want to work in communities where there are, like, bizarre diseases that don't happen anywhere else, and I'm just going to, like, front up even though I feel underqualified. It's the most exhilarating book because he also talks about, like, because he's very young when he starts doing this, and he goes through all of those loneliness, depression, drinking too much, and is still guided by this extraordinary ethic. Anyway, it's an amazing book. So what happens sometimes when you go to writers' festivals is people hand you books, you're like, hello fantastic, totally read that. And I did, and it's so good. So Life and Death Decisions by Dr. Lachlan McIver. It's a beautiful, inspirational book. It's funny. It's full of action. I totally recommend it. Um, I'll never see him again, but Lachlan, <laughs> here's to you. You live in Geneva. Maybe we'll catch up sometime, but like, bloody loved your book, and thanks for furtively shoving it into my hand at that dinner. Now, we've given a shout-out to some great stuff. I just want to shit-can a few things now, to be honest. Wow. Okay. Um, this is a controversial one, but the current season of Ted Lasso. Ooh. Yeah, I knew the crowd would be antsy about that. Um, it's really leaving me cold, and I've actually abandoned watching it after about two and a half episodes. Oh. oh. Okay, here's, here's my problem with it. Salty tears being shed. <laughs> it feels cartoonish. And I feel like if I worked with Ted Lasso, he would be the most annoying colleague ever. Like, you'd say something and he'd be like, beg to differ, Claudia Schiffer, and you'd just be like, I want to punch you so bad. <laughs> I find his character very annoying. But then I'm wondering, is it because we know too much now about Jason Sudeikis' private life and that we're bringing that knowledge to the watching of the show, because he's had or a very messy... is it because you're a jerk? <laughs> he's... No, it's... Not... Have you been watching it? No. Okay. It's... <laughs> it's... I sort of, like, I dozed on and off... Look, to be honest, we started watching the first uh, sorry, series... Sorry, could I just make sure everyone caught that quote? I dozed on and off. It says no, no, everything. No, 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 What happened with us and Ted Lasso is that we started watching it as a family, and my youngest child, who, when we started watching it, was, like, nine, she does this thing where whenever there's swears in a show, she's like, Mom! Mom! <laughs> So she wouldn't have lasted And everybody long. is like, oh, shut up, Kate. But, like, also, <laughs> she's allowed because she's tiny and, you know, what happens when you're the youngest kid <laughs> of three is that everybody's like, well, everybody's happy with the C-bomb. Well, not really. And so she's like, Mom! And so we stopped watching Ted Lasso because there were so many F-bombs that we couldn't hear the dialogue over the... Uh, Mow! Mow! Yeah, right. And so same, same thing with Die Hard. We can't watch that either, <laughs> even though it's a great 
As you know, great love, movie. Love Die Hard. Um, so anyway, we'll yeah. watch it together some point, but we like discontinued watching it as a family for that structural reason. I but Jeremy be. kept watching it and he loved season one, loved season two, but got to say season three is like... I'm watching it, but it feels like homework now. I, look, season one and season two, I kind of liked, didn't, wasn't in love with, but I thought they were fine, but then this one, not. The other show that I feel like, what is this just mess, is The Diplomat. <laughs> okay, I feel partially responsible for that <laughs> because I started watching it and I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> Kerry Russell in a new show about spying and diplomacy I cannot wait. Yeah. I'm like, I know. And so I, I was immediately hooked to And I read some of the reviews that were like, listen, it's not the Americans, but Carrie Russell is still Carrie Russell. I'm like, yes, she is. And I'm here for that. And so yep. I watched the first episode and I'm like, hmm, well, yeah, no, it's not the Americans, but also she's still Carrie Russell. And at the end, there's some sort of like epic fuckery with the husband, which I think, I'm like, oh, this is getting interesting. And then, after I recorded a podcast with you, and I'm like, come on, like, let's do it. Like, <laughs> stick with it. And Lisa Miller's like, I'm definitely into it. And I'm like, me too. And then I watched another, like, four episodes. I'm like, oh. <laughs> like, my interest in this program has narrowed to a point of, like, when is she going to have sex with the hot foreign secretary? And that's all I'm interested in. <laughs> I have had enough of her pretending not to be able to walk in high heels. I've got enough of her, like, I yeah. just, it's a dumb show. And yet I hate <laughs> watched it to the end. And uh, then I wasn't satisfied because the thing that I wanted to happen didn't happen. Uh, so I'm like, Jesus, I'm showing up for the second series. Okay. I hate myself. Well, my like, question, don't keep watching it. You won't like it. Okay. My question was how, because I also am loyal to Kerry Russell because I love the Americans so much. Sure. And so my question, and she's an EP of it and everything. And sure. so my question was, well, how loyal should you be to somebody of whom you're a fan? And I feel like you've answered the question, which is. I have. Yeah, yeah I don't owe just, her anything. Just <laughs> jump off, baby. Throw her under the bus. Yeah, <laughs> under the bus. I mean, look, yeah. Okay. I wouldn't worry about it. Um, so, uh, <laughs> wow, like rocketing through things here. Um, I have been watching Queen Charlotte. I'm not proud. I'm not proud. <laughs> that is a stupid show. <laughs> I was talking about stupid shows. Like, this is funny because normally we only talk about things we like oh, and we just hit a jag of stuff that we... And I'm like, will this be good? Probably not. Indeed, not. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, God. I've got some more regionally specific, like, quick reviews to deliver. Um, so I watched, in the last 24 hours, a documentary that was shot here in Logan in um, Queensland. Um, I love how when she said it was shot here in Logan, I was thinking right. she has no idea where Logan I is. I do know. And then when she goes. I do. Goes, it's in the federal seat of Rankin. I've been to goddamn Logan. I've yeah, been to the goddamn markets. I know the stats. I, I know where it is. If I, point, if I gave Such you a, a map jerk. in Queensland, I know you couldn't point to it. No, me. I'm not good with maps. <laughs> I went and filmed at Craig Emerson's house in Logan. Okay. It was an emotional experience. How long experience. was that drive from here? Just curious to know. From here? Yeah. I didn't start from here, mate. 
I know it's outside Brisbane. I'm just saying here as in Queensland. <laughs> Jesus. Okay. Well, where's Port Augusta? How far is it from Adelaide? Mate? I don't know. I don't know. Can you name a good wine that's made in Queensland? <laughs> Let's not start. It's not start oh. the SA versus oh. Queensland Wars. You're, you're lucky people don't start ripping <laughs> yeah, their chairs no. out. Now, I'm gonna be... you've forgotten where you are, lady. <laughs> no, I haven't. <laughs> anyway, the doco set in Logan. Ooh, yeah, it is. Anyway, it made me cry. Thanks very much for disrespecting my response to this excellent doco. It just won a bunch of films in Canada at the Hot Docs Festival... I would like to just shame you for your disrespect for this creative product. I'm not disrespecting your... this product. I'm disrespecting well, your knowledge you of Brisbane suburbia. Oh, Jesus. I just... Okay, carry on. What's the name of the documentary? It's called Because We Have Each Other, and it is a film that was made over five years. The director um, is uh, a woman called Sari Braithwaite, and it's about a family of five... Um, mum and dad who got married when they had already kids like so dad had three kids mum had two and it's kind of a love story um, but also a kind of like a hard scrabble struggle story they have five kids all of whom are neurodiverse in some way and they are the most fascinating beautiful family and all the kids are really interesting, they've grown up. Um, but one of them is um, Becky, who has something called highly superior autobiographical memory. She's one of around about 80 people in the world who have this particular pattern. And she can remember every single day of her life in vivid detail. Ugh. And she is um, this remarkable How woman. old is she? So I'd say she's in her mid-twenties, I reckon, um, just from watching the film. And, and what's the practical effect of that on your life? Well, she's kind of a magical person. Um, so she's highly attentive great at chess and she can remember everything, which is kind of this incredible gift, but also this extraordinary burden because if you can remember every single day of your life, and she says that she can remember meeting her mother as a baby. I know, it's, and her mother is this just, her mother Janet is this incredible woman like I don't know it's the most nourishing film like it's it's hard because they don't have a lot of money there's like it's tough bad things have happened to them in their lives but the love between Janet and Buddha her partner um is the most extraordinary thing and just the variety in the family in their kind of neurodiverse makeup is like Extraordinary. Anyway, um, so Becky um, can remember everything and that means that she can remember all the hard things that have happened in just stark detail. She can't forget things, mm. 
which is really tough, but also she's just prodigious, like her brain is prodigious. And you see at some point she's like learning French, she can remember everything, she can remember all of the words. Pronunciation is just like, mm. yeah, but like she's just remembers everything. Imagine having a brain like that. Imagine not being able to forget things. It's an the role of memory and what you remember and forget is very important, actually. Right. And somehow not being able to forget things mm. is like being just caught on this sort of, just this cycle, right? Anyway, the most remarkable thing about the film is just this human capacity to deal with the circumstances that life gives you and to find beauty in them. And like, there is this just shining thread of beauty through this film. Like Michael J. Fox. Right? I mean, that is the most remarkable thing about that film too. Anyway, I don't know. I feel like at this, I just turned 50. There's like bad things that have happened in my life in the last year or two. I find um, that the stuff that I read and consume now, all I'm interested in is what do people make of pain? Like, how do they survive hardship? And I know it's like, <laughs> like we ran into that like lovely chatter in the ABC the other day who was saying like, oh God, all of your reading lists are so like, they're so like dark at the moment. I'm like, I know, <laughs> it's like all I'm reading is like, how do people process pain? And like, how do people find beauty in pain? I feel like that's sort of, the sharpened point of life, right? That's what I love about... <laughs> yeah. oh, anyway, so anyway, no, not to be a downer, No, I think but that, like, that is um, what you... Like, I think you reach a certain age where you basically realise life is extremely hard. Well, I mean, sure, but like... Some people so, sadly reach that realisation earlier than others. Right, of course. So. Um, and then sometimes it's actually writers that make the most sense of that confusion, like, of why is why can life be so unfair sometimes and even when you feel like you're super fortunate you can be kind of smashed up by sad things happening anyway weirdly enough recently i and i don't know how i missed this the first time round but i found this piece that helen garner wrote um in the guardian on and it was a little short essay helen garner on happiness and like who can resist Helen Garner on pretty much anything? I'd read her on banana splits or, like, poo <laughs> drops or whatever. Definitely read her on that. Anyway, I'm not going to read out the whole thing because it would be long and boring. It's already 9.15, and I can see you would be like, I need to be in bed by noon. <laughs> but, like, she says, what is happiness anyway? Does anybody know? It's taken me 80 years to figure out that it's not a tranquil sunlit realm at the top of the ladder you've spent your whole life hauling yourself up rung by rung it's more like the thing that christians call grace you can't earn it you can't strive for it it's not a reward for virtue it exists all right it'll be given to you but it's fluid it's evasive it's out of reach it's something you glimpse in the corner of your eye until one day you're up to your neck in it. And before you've had time to take a big gasp and name it, it's gone. So I'm not going to spend what's left of my life hanging around waiting for it. I'm going to settle for small, random stabs of extreme 
interestingness. <laughs> Moments of intense awareness of the things I'm about to lose and of gladness that they exist. Things that remind me of other things, tiny scenes, words that people choose, their accidentally biblical turns of phrase, hand-lettered signs, quotes from books, off-hand remarks that make me think of dead people or of living ones I can no longer stand the sight of. <laughs> Previously unrecorded instance of Helen Garner ending a sentence with a preposition there. Anyway, so she lists a bunch of stuff. Look it up, I mean, it's the most glorious piece of writing. But the great thing is, like, about two-thirds of the way through, she says, and she's listing, like, tiny things that make her delight. She says, the theatre nurse gripping my hand at the moment the anaesthetic knocks me out. Gospel shouters, the fact that Aretha Franklin once walked this earth. The surprise of feeling my face soften at the theme music of the Japanese series Midnight Diner. <laughs> Realising that I have an enormous vocabulary. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one I just like, I wrote to her, I'm like, I love that. She's like, I put that in and then I took it out because it seemed boastful. And then I left it in because I thought there would be smart women who would enjoy that. And I'm like, <laughs> shit yeah, Helen Garner. Well done. Loved it. Speaking of happiness, those trucker parties aren't going to staff themselves. Let's get going. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here this evening. I'm being wrapped up by our mutual oppressor, Lee Sales. <laughs> Sorry that we made bits of it weepy, but also poo drops. Poo drops. Thank you. Oh, the crystal chandeliers light up the paintings on your wall. Marble statuettes are standing safely in the hall. Will the kindly crown that has you lightning light help you dry your tears? When the new words off of your crystal chandelier, I never did fit in too well with folks you knew. And it's plain to see that the likes of me don't fit with you So you traded me for the gaiety of the well-to-do And you turned away from the love I offered you All the crystal chandeliers light up the paintings on your wall Marble